the father and son team, Team Hoyt began in 1977 when Rick asked his father if they could run in a race together to uh, benefit a lacrosse player at his school who'd been injured and paralyzed. He wanted to prove that life goes on no matter your disability. When they began the father, Dick was just 36 years old, and he'd never run a mile in his life. And after their first race, uh, Dick began running every day with a bag of concrete in the wheelchair uh, because Rick was at school. That's how he trained. As of March 2016, the Hoyts had competed in 1,130 endurance events, including 72 marathons and seven Ironman triathlons. They had run in the Boston Marathon 32 times. And perhaps their greatest achievement, Dick and Rick biked and ran across the U.S. in 1992, completing a full 3,335 miles in 45 days. Each one of us has a specific race that God has called us to run. And the race that God has in mind for us is not a sprint. It's a long-distance marathon. And if we're going to persevere in the things of God, if we're going to finish our race, that we need a power greater than ourselves. We need staying power. We live in a time when long-term commitment seems to be fading in so many areas of our society. One study which analyzed New Year's Eve's resolutions found that uh, actually very few people complete their goals. The study showed that just 8% of people completed their New New Year's Eve's goals, which means that 92% of people failed. Look, I get it. It's a challenge, whether it's saving money or going to the gym or not eating hot wings at 11 o'clock, four nights a week, binge watching Avengers for the 10th time. Look, I get it. I think it's all something we can identify with and, and laugh about. One area, though, that's not so lighthearted is in the area of long-term marriages. Uh, Pew Research reports that at a time when divorce is actually declining among younger people, uh, the so-called gray divorce is on the rise. Uh, Americans, uh, adults, American adults age 50 and older, uh, the divorce rate has roughly doubled since the 1990s. In a New York Times article on the subject of late-life divorce, Deidre Baer, who's the author of the book, Calling It Quits, Late-Life Divorce and Starting Over, found out that, quote, many of the divorce stories ended with some rendition of, it's my time, and if I don't take it now, I never will. No matter whether they had spent years gearing up for divorce or decided on the spur of the moment after one minor disagreement too many, few had regrets. Men who wanted new companionship easily found it, and women who wanted new partners had them within two years. Now, we're facing serious spiritual and moral challenges, as the previous example illustrates, and if we focus or rely on our own strength, we may very well give up due to the weakness within or from the pressure without. And I know many of you here today are facing a serious battle for your marriage, for your children, for your health even. And many of you don't feel like you can go on in your race. But if I can continue with the sports metaphor, what do you do when you feel like throwing in the towel? Or or what do you do when you feel like tapping out? 
If that's you and you don't feel like you can go on, I've got great news for you today. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth and he'll help us to see the glory and the power that is available to us. My big idea for this message is this, is we get the power to persevere when we focus on Jesus. We get the power to persevere when we focus on Jesus. Now, my text today will be out of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But before we dive into the text, uh, let's lay some groundwork by looking at the context. Hebrews is written in the unique style of a sermonic letter, which means that there's a strong chance that this was delivered orally as a sermon before it was adapted to the letter style of writing. Hebrews is a word of exhortation. It's addressed to Jewish Christians who were under threat. The historical context suggests that there was uh, intense pressure from within by ostracism from fellow Jews who, who did not accept Uh, Jesus as Messiah, as well as external pressure from the growing persecution from the Romans. Now, one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews is to argue for the Christian faith by establishing the supremacy of Jesus Christ in his person and in his work. Jesus Christ is described as greater than any angel, greater than Moses, greater than any priest or the law, and each reader is called to hold on by faith to the true rest found in Jesus Christ and to encourage others in the church to persevere. Uh, In researching this passage, I found out that the race here in Hebrews 12 refers to uh, a foot race that was one of the contests in the pentathlon in the early Greek games. And the idea here is of a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's about endurance. It's not about speed. So in this race that we're on, we're not competing with each other. We're all on a lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ to live as his disciple and his kingdom representative to a lost and dying world. The author here is encouraging us to take our race seriously. And I feel like that is a timely reminder for our pampered culture. Now, with that background in mind, let's go to our text today. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We need three things if we're going to experience the persevering power of Jesus. And the theme of my message today is is that of a three-stage relay race. And I'm inviting you to run this race with me and we'll get across the finish line together. The first stage is to get going. Now, to get going, we have to realize that we're in a serious, lifelong race that calls for our commitment. It calls for our endurance. Now, we've already seen some of the challenges that older adults face. Let's look at some of the challenges that younger adults face. This week at our son Benjamin's tennis match, I saw one of the other parents wearing a shirt that said, I can't even adult today. Now, Urban Dictionary defines adulting as to do grown-up things and hold responsibilities, such as a 
nine-to-five job, a mortgage or rent, a car payment, or anything else that makes one think of grown-ups. Now, <laughs> I know, I know. In a 2016 article, Daniel Tulo comments, quote, scroll through the adulting hashtag on Twitter at any given moment, and you're likely to see millennials sharing anecdotes like, quote, I grabbed drinks with friends but only talked about apartment leases, adulting. I have clean laundry, adulting. And I made dinner that wasn't hummus and baby carrots, adulting. Now, listen, I can appreciate the humor in this term and some of the funny memes that are out there. (laughs) But my fear is that too many of us uh, consider things that are essential to the Christian faith as spiritual adulting, as something to be praised and applauded. So coming to church is not spiritual adulting. Uh, Disciplines like reading your Bible or prayer, it's not spiritual adulting. Evangelism and making disciples is not spiritual adulting. These are foundational to the Christian life. Verse 1, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, the opening word here in verse 1 is an important clue. Whenever you see the word, therefore, we need to stop and recognize that the author is signaling an important transition. Therefore is a connective word that communicates a shift in the argument. So the author refers to the Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11 as a great cloud of witnesses. These are some of the great heroes, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Gideon, Daniel, and Samuel, just to name a few. And one of the things that I see here in verse 1 is an emphasis on community. The text says we are surrounded by a great cloud or a multitude of disciples who've gone on before us. Now, the image here is of a a large coliseum, a sports coliseum that in ancient times would hold contests or events. Some people have interpreted this this verse here to to mean that the, the faithful who've gone on before us are in the stands cheering us on as we run our race. Like, oh, you can do it. But I don't think that's what the author has in mind here. In fact, I think it's the opposite. The main point here is that these are witnesses who are not passive spectators. They were active participants in God's story, and they were faithful, and we're to look to them for an example and for encouragement. Just a couple of months ago, on August 2nd, Joe Hardy, who was one of the founding members of New Life Church, passed away. At his funeral, Pastor Kara told the story of how the parish family actually came to be at New Life. Years ago, when we were known as Our Savior Baptist, there was a connection between uh, Pastor Carol's brother, uh, and that's how the introduction got made. And um, uh, there was a, they, they had been invited, Pastor Carol and Debbie, to come up and, and, and be guests, and, and he was going to preach. And when he and Miss Debbie came for that visit, Joe Hardy let them know that after the evening service, yeah, they had evening services then, okay, just so you know, morning, evening. After the evening service, there was going to be a committee, a church member meeting to vote to actually call Pastor Carroll as senior senior pastor. And uh, uh, Pastor Carroll let Joe know that, you know, we're not really interested. We don't really even like Louisville. Uh, <laughs> but 
sure enough, after that, uh, that Sunday service and, and the, the vote, um, there was a yes vote to call the parishes to lead the church. And after some time of prayer, they came to lead New Life. Joe persevered. He would not take no for an answer. But listen, if it weren't for his persistence, I doubt many of us would be here today. One of the great strengths of New Life Church is the number of mature Christians that we have here. In a sense, we have our own great cloud of witnesses, men and women with decades of experience and wisdom that we can look to as an example. These are witnesses, some of whom have paid a great price that my generation and the ones to follow owe a great debt of gratitude. If that's you and you're here, we want you to know that you're appreciated and admired. Thank you. We've said it many times here at New Life, and we truly believe that God builds through relationships. And one of the things as leadership that we want to keep reminding you of is that individual Christianity, right, the idea of me and Jesus that's not biblical, and that doesn't work. And we know from other passages and from, and from other historical records that the church was and is a community. We are the people of God before we're ever a building, a program, a class, or an outreach. We're the people of God. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, we all have the same finish line, but we find encouragement when we run our race together. So after making an appeal to a faithful witness who's, who've gone before, the author continues with two instructions to help us get going. The first is, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, things that can hinder can also be translated as weights. And the author has in mind here any extra things that would weigh an athlete down. Uh, in particular, one commentator noted that it was very common at the time for athletes to wear very long, heavy, flowing robes that yet could hinder you, could weigh you down in your race. But this idea of throwing off everything that hinders, it also has some implications for us today. And my point is that things that hinder us they can actually be good things that in excess have become harmful things to our walk with God. So if you're a younger person, that might mean your cell phone. It might mean how much time you're spending with sports. Or, dare I say it, Fortnite. <laughs> now for the adults, it could be external things like more money or the next promotion or the amazing, unforgettable vacation getaway. Please hear me. These are not bad things in and of themselves. The issue is when these things begin to dominate our time and focus, they can hinder us. They can weigh us down. But it's also the intangible things that can hinder us, that can weigh us down. Things like fears, anxieties, strongholds, or, or, or making agreements with lies that we've believed. These things can bind us. For me, it's been the, the fear of man and people-pleasing. There's a lot of reasons for that. I think some of the big ones are losing my father at an early age and uh, never really knowing uh, what he thought about me or, or how I measured up. So I craved the approval of everyone. But with God's help, I'm no longer a slave to what people think of me. 
right? I have more freedom and more joy in my own race than ever before because I know my value and my worth comes from my identity in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from what I do or what I have. Right? And I've got to tell you, it feels good. It really does. So let me ask you, what are the things that are weighing you down? One of the ways to apply this message is to do business with God and to ask Him to reveal the things that may be hindering you in your race. The author then turns attention from hindrances and the image of being weighed down to the image of being tripped up because of the sin that so easily entangles. In his excellent book, Respectable Sins, subtitled Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, Jerry Bridges makes the excellent argument that the church sometimes focuses too much on the larger cultural sins that are out there while ignoring the less public sins like pride, envy, selfishness. And one of, the, one of these respectable private sins that needs to be addressed is gossip. As the standard for biblical and kingdom living increases here at New Life, we're seeing more and more instances of this deadly and subtle sin of gossip. Now, here, here's an example of what that might look like. Oftentimes, someone will come to you to complain about a problem they're having uh, with another person. Now, when that happens, you have a choice to make, right? If you passively entertain those comments about another person, about, about a brother or sister of Christ, then you are giving room for Satan to do serious relational damage. It can taint the way you view that other person to the point that you actually pick up the offense for the person who came to you. That's not right. Now, the way to deal with that and keep it from spreading is to stop the conversation before it goes too far. If something is said to you that you know is out of bounds, you don't have to take that on. You can push that back onto the person and tell them, hey, go talk to that person and work it out. So just be forewarned. If you come to someone here in leadership complaining about a problem you have or how someone's offended you, just know we're going to push you back to talk to that person face to face. And the point the author is making here is for us to get rid of these things that entangle us and listen, sometimes we need a reminder that the things that entangle, they're not out there. They're in here. Matthew 12, 34 says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So once we've gotten clear of the things that hinder and the sins that entangle, the author instructs us to run with perseverance, with commitment, the race that's marked out for us. So as we finish this first leg of the relay to get going, we now take the baton to the second leg, which is to get focused. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, in my research, I found that one of the most important keys to running a successful long distance race is the issue of focus. In an article by Olga Kazan titled, Running Faster by Focusing on the Finish Line, she cites research that, that shows that people who gaze at an object in the distance, they go faster and they feel less exertion than people who let their minds wander. Here's a quote. She says, it turns out that taking the eyes on the prize mantra literally can help with performance. One study found that focusing on a stopping point in the distance like a building or tree can cause distances to appear shorter. 
I think we can all agree there are a lot of distractions in our world right now. There are many things that are competing for your attention. My Twitter feed is like drinking from an information fire hose these days. It's overwhelming. But keeping your eyes on the prize helps you stay focused on the thing that's most important to you. Here's an important question for you to consider. What does keeping the eye, your eyes on the prize mean to you? Is it getting completely debt-free, including your mortgage by age 55? Is it expanding your uh, personal brand on social media? Is it making sure your political party gets ahead? It always comes down to your heart. What, or more important, who has captured your heart? The author here is encouraging us to turn away from all the things that can distract us from running our race and keep our eyes fixed on the ultimate prize, Jesus Christ himself. Now, I love verse 2 because it's jam-packed with beautiful gospel truths. First, Jesus is described here as the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, these terms are significant with the idea uh, of the long-distance race. Author can also be translated as founder or initiator or forerunner. He's the one who our faith depends on from start to finish. He's the, the trailblazer who brings our faith to perfect completion through his death and resurrection. Now, continuing on in verse 2, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, what in the world is this joy that was before Jesus that he chose to endure the cross? Well, let's think back to Jesus's farewell discourse at the Last Supper in the book of John. Here's a couple verses, John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 16, 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus was focusing on the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus saw the overwhelming beauty and happiness of sharing eternal joy with his followers and it propelled him to suffer the cross and endure it. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John Piper, in his Advent devotional called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, he has this to say. The joy Jesus was bringing into the world was like no other kind in history. This joy for us is indestructible joy, and it cannot ever be taken from you. I love that description. It's indestructible. Now, the closest thing that I can imagine to, to this is, is being a parent and enduring what you have to for the sake of your kids, right? There is a joy that you want to experience and share with your kids. I came across a moving story that illustrates what a parent will go through for the future joy of their child. Ashley Bridges was a healthy young woman with her whole life ahead of her. When in 2012, she began to have severe, severe uh, knee pain. Uh, and in October 2013, she finally was referred to a specialist when the pain became too much. When the doctors returned to her waiting room with the test results, they let her know that she had an aggressive form of bone cancer called osteosarcoma. She had to remove much of her femur and get her knee replaced. But that wasn't really the biggest sacrifice that she had to make. It turns out that when all this happened, Ashley was pregnant. 
Now, to survive this kind of aggressive cancer, she was going to have to start chemotherapy immediately. But to do so would almost certainly end the life of the baby girl inside her womb. But she never wavered in her decision to put off treatment until the baby was born. And listen to what she says. It wasn't a choice to me. It was like, this is what needs to be done. She's first. I'm not going to kill a healthy baby because I'm sick. There's nothing wrong with her. Her life is just as important as mine, if not more important. I mean, as a mother, my job is to protect my kids. Ashley Bridges gave birth to a healthy baby girl and was able to enjoy her for several months before succumbing to cancer. In the midst of incredible suffering, Ashley had the joy, the joy of knowing that her daughter would have every opportunity for a full and prosperous life. We are rightly impressed and moved by the ultimate sacrifice of the mother for the daughter she barely got to know. Cancer is a horrible disease, as many of us know. But Jesus didn't just conquer conquer cancer, as horrible as that is. He endured the curse of the cross for the eternal salvation, not just of one person, but for everyone who would turn to him. The text says that he scorned the shame of the cross. Now, scorning here means that he, he, he didn't even pay attention to it, really. He, he cast it aside. He counted it of little worth compared to the joy that was set before him. And that's one of the most important, uh, powerful aspects of Jesus' death on the cross. Yes, he bore our sins on the cross. Yes, he bore our sickness on the cross. But this text says specifically that he bore our shame. That's good news. Because all of us have things that we're ashamed of and things we want to keep hidden. And that's the essence of shame. It's the fear of being exposed. And because Jesus was publicly humiliated and experienced that kind of shame, we don't have to carry it anymore. Verse 2 finishes with a picture of a triumphant Jesus, now in the position of glory, the right hand of the throne of God. (coughs) So far in our race, relay race, we've learned we need to get going. Next, we learned we need to get focused. And last, we need to get courage. We've been reminded that we are in a serious lifelong marathon. We've been encouraged to cast off the things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles, and we've been directed to focus our eyes on Jesus. But now we come to the crescendo of the author's argument, and if you've been with me so far, this is the so what part of the message. Hebrews verse 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That the author invites us to consider Jesus, which means to think carefully on, to ponder deeply who he is and what he's done. Right? We're called to not only think about, but take, take to heart the beauty and the richness of the gospel so we don't get tired and quit. Listen, there are going to be moments in your life that could overwhelm you. Moments when you get that devastating phone call with devastating news. And listen, I've been there. Many of you have too. And it's by considering Jesus, it's by internalizing and taking ownership of the fullness of who he is and what he's done that we get the courage to keep moving forward. 
We get the power to persevere when we focus on Jesus. And listen, he didn't just suffer innocently and die. This was warfare. This was Jesus securing the ultimate victory over evil. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all to all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Listen, the devil wants to oppress you. He wants to lie to you. He wants to overwhelm you. He wants to get the fight out of you. Don't let him do it. When you face cancer, consider Jesus, who is your healer. When you face the death of a loved one, consider Jesus, who is well acquainted with suffering. When you face depression and loneliness, consider Jesus, the friend who sticks closer than a brother. We get the power to persevere when we focus on Jesus. The language here in verse 3 about opposition from sinful men has an important purpose Remember the context of the church during the writing this time. They're facing immense pressure. I don't have time to unpack Hebrews 10, but in, in that chapter, the author is reminding them of how they endured suffering, public ridicule, and how they even had to deal with the loss of their property. Whether in our spiritual life or in our life's calling, there will always be opposition. A great example of perseverance in the face of great evil is William Wilberforce, who is well-known as one of the leading opponents of slavery in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, as early as 1789, as a young man, Wilberforce helped launch 12 anti-slavery resolutions that all failed. Other bills introduced by Wilberforce were defeated in 1791, 92, 93, 97, 98, 99, 1804, and 1805. Early in his struggle against slavery, Wilberforce received a letter from a friend that no doubt encouraged him to persevere. Written February 24th, 1791, at age 88, six days before his death, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, wrote this last letter from his deathbed to a discouraged William Wilberforce. This letter was written a full 16 years before the abolition of, abolition of slavery in Great Britain. Here's an excerpt. Dear sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius against the world, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. That he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things. Your affectionate servant, John Wesley. Oh, it's powerful. Mm. 
if we have friends who can encourage us to give up, not to not give up and to persevere in the face of evil, how much more will our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ encourage us? One final story as we close. When I was researching this message, I found out about Team Hoyt on the, web, on the website of another great example of perseverance. Team Hoyt was the 2013 uh, Jimmy V Award uh, for Perseverance winner, and that's named after the NC State head basketball coach, Jim Balvano. It's 1983, won the national title with a 54-52 victory over Houston, and the ending of that final game is one of the most famous in basketball history. You, you'll see it all this season. is a, is a buzzer-beating dunk by Lorenzo Charles after a desperation 30-foot pass by Derek Wittenberg. Who can forget that amazing scene uh, of Coach Valvano running around the court looking for someone to hug after that amazing victory? It's amazing. <clears throat> Years later, he was diagnosed with cancer. And it was at the 1993 ESPY Award where he announced the launch of the V Foundation for Cancer Research. He gave an amazing speech two, two months before he would pass away that still brings you to tears today. In that speech, as he makes an appeal to raise funds for cancer research, he says, quote, it may not save my life. It may save my children's lives. It may save someone you love. He then announced the motto of the V Foundation that lives on today, don't give up. Don't ever give up. At the end, with all the strength that he had, Jim Valvano was thinking about the future joy of others who would be cancer-free. If you feel like you can't go on, focus on the one who truly never gave up. Jesus was tempted to escape the horror of the cross. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, your will be done. And Jesus, for the joy set before him, took our place, endured the cross, and bore the wrath of God's punishment for sin. He received our sin, and we received his righteousness. Today, focus on Jesus who gave it all, who's gone ahead of you and finished the race as your champion. We need to get going. We need to get focused. We need to get courage. And remember, we get the power to persevere when we focus on Jesus.